And for the rest of you, to the book of Jonah we go. If you got your Bibles, let's open them to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, if you've been with us for the past three weeks, um, we are walking through this. We've got today and next Sunday, and then that's it. We'll be done with Jonah. So appreciate you putting up with me and, uh, and being patient with me to walk through this. So I'm, I'm excited about Jonah 3, um, but at the same end, I think there's some things in this that are, uh, are going to be tough. They've been tough for me this week. So um, what I'm going to do, let's, let's do just a quick recap, remind us of Jonah 1 and 2. We'll read the passage, pray, and then we'll jump into it. So if you remember back in Jonah chapter 1, God calls a prophet, Jonah, the son of Amittai, and he says, hey, I want you to get up and I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. And I want you to preach a message to the Ninevites. I want you to warn them about uh, my wrath because their evil has come up before me is what it says in Jonah chapter one, verse two. So Jonah, being a prophet, being an Israelite says, no way, no how. Not doing what you want, God. I'm gonna do things my way. So Jonah packs his bags. He goes down to a little town. He buys a ticket and he jumps on a boat and he heads towards Tarshish, in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. Goes a long ways away, uh, away from the presence of the Lord. But God in his mercy said, I'm not done with you yet, Jonah. And so God in his mercy, what does he do? He throws a great big storm at him and at at this boat full of people. Uh, And so Jonah goes down the bottom of this boat. He falls asleep and God in his mercy sends these pagan sailors. Uh, He gets them to fall on their knees and start praying. And the captain goes down and sees Jonah and says, hey, what are you doing, man? We got a storm here. This isn't any normal storm. This is, this is a great storm. What's going on? So, so they asked Jonah what's happening. And Jonah says, hold on a minute. I'm the problem. I'm running from the presence of the Lord. And so the, the sailors say, what do we do? What do we do with you, Jonah? What, how should we respond so that God will relent, that this, this storm will back off so we don't all die? And Jonah says, throw me over the edge. Just toss me in the water. So I'll be done. What do the sailors do? No, we can't do that. We can't be guilty for your life. So they try to row back to shore as hard as they can. They have no success. So the last resort is throw the man into the water. That brings us to the end of chapter one. They throw the man into the water. And what does God do? Jonah's sinking to his watery grave to die. But the Lord appoints a fish. And this fish swallows Jonah. And Jonah gets to spend three days and three nights in the slimy yuckiness of the belly of a fish. And while he's there, he gets to meditate on life, on his sin, on what God is doing in that moment and his chance to return. So Jonah 2, we talked about last week, uh, Jonah prays a prayer uh, and and ultimately the end of his prayer, the last line of of verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. It says, God, I need you to save me. Um, And so as soon as Jonah recognizes his shortcomings uh, and where his sin has led him, uh, cries out to God, what does God do? God speaks to that fish and that fish vomits Jonah out on the dry land. It's a pretty, pretty powerful word. I think some translations may say spit, uh, but, but, but a better translation is really vomit, just that whole regurgitation of that. It's kind of gross, right? Uh, but the, the fish vomits Jonah out on the dry land. So that brings us to Jonah chapter three. Okay, Jonah chapter three. I'm gonna read these 10 verses and then we'll pray. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Four, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached 
the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And then he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the now three weeks we've had to, to study your text. Um, God, I pray today as we look at this, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see and understand exactly what you have for us. Help us to understand who you are. Uh, God, help us to become like you. Father, as we study this, I pray that you would grant us courage. Courage to step forward in your mission. Uh, courage to truly repent of our sin. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the time and ability to go through it. Spirit of God, we ask you now to help us. God, we expect to hear from you. We come expecting to hear from your word. Spirit, move in us, change us, help us. We ask this, Father, for our good and for your glory. Amen. All right, so I'm gonna boil it. If you could take chapter three and boil it down into one point, this would be it. God in his mercy is giving you a second chance. God in his mercy is giving you a second chance. Now, kind of feel like Jonah 3 could almost be two different sermons that are really short, but I'm going to try and tie it all together into one sermon that's normal length. Uh, and I've got it kind of broken down into four points. The first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see God's mission for Jonah. Then we'll see Jonah's mission to Nineveh. We'll see Nineveh's repentance to God and God's mercy to Jonah. So, so I'll, I'll go through all that as we go through it, but it's kind of, uh, it's in, in scripture, it's what's called a chiastic structure. So if you see God to Jonah, and it kind of steps out Jonah to Nineveh, Nineveh to God, and it comes back from God to Nineveh. So that kind of makes sense in your head. If I had a whiteboard, I'd draw it up here for you, but we'll leave that over to the side for now. So that's, that's our roadmap for today. Uh, that's how this passage kind of breaks down. Um, but uh, the first thing we're gonna see in this, in, in chapter three, verse one, is we're gonna see God's mission for Jonah. Now, if you took Jonah chapter three and you read verses one and two, and then you jump back over to Jonah chapter one and read verses one and two, you would see very little difference between the two things. They are almost exactly identical. Verses one and two of chapter three and one and two of chapter one. Why is that? What, what is going on? This is a literary structure. What the author of Jonah, what Jonah's doing in this moment, this is gonna signify, he's, he's giving you something to remind you, to help you see Jonah gets a new beginning. It's like we've hit reset on the story. Let's start it all over. Let's see how this goes. Jonah gets a second chance to respond to the command of God. And having just been vomited out of the fish and landing back on dry land, Jonah is now ready to go. At least it seems this way. Now, this little repeat of verses one and two in chapter three, this should cause us to have a lot of hope because God is a God who in his mercy gives second chances. Now, I don't know about you, when I think of people who need second chances, my mind tends to run towards those, especially when we're talking about God and second chances, my mind tends to run towards those who are unchurched, 
right? Who, who grew up not going to church, who grew up uh, away from God, against God. Um, you think of the worst of the worst, right? Th- those are the people who need a second chance, right? But who's Jonah? Jonah was a man of God who knew the word of God, the expectations of God's people. He lived among God's people. And despite having all of those things, Jonah was disobedient. So the second chance that we see in Jonah chapter three, verses one and two, is given to those that are God's people, that are in the church, people like me, people like you. We tend to think of those people outside of the church as those that need mercy, but who needs mercy? Is it the one who doesn't know God's word and lives against God? Or is it the one who actually knows God's word and doesn't live according to his ways? Which one's worse in your mind? What's worse is the person who knows God, knows God's expectation, but doesn't live according to God's expectation. Those are the people who need mercy. Church, if we say we exist to glorify God by making disciples in Dalhart and around the world, but we don't do it, how are we different from Jonah? So I'm not trying to stand up here and say, how dare you, you Pharisees. Jonah chapter three, verses one and two has been for me this week to say, how are you actually participating in the mission of God? See, this mission statement, we exist to glorify God, is not something that our previous pastors came up with. That's what God was doing in Genesis 3. That's what God was doing in Jonah. God was sending his people to go and carry his word and make disciples. And Jonah said, I'm not gonna do it. He began the work of redeeming creation back to himself a long time ago. And he's called his people to participate in his mission. God is accomplishing his mission through you. So how are you participating in God's mission? We'll talk to the men for a minute. Men, when was the last time you asked your wife how you could pray for her? When was the last time, men, you sat down with your Bible and your family and you said, hey, let's just read this? When was the last time your kids heard you pray? What about women? Women in the room, when was the last time you asked your husband how you could support him rather than nag at him? There's women all different ages and stages, just like men in this room, but think about your attitude. Has your attitude been one of criticism or one of service? Have you, have you lived a life going, man, I'm waiting on someone to serve me or I'm living a life to serve others? What about students in the room? We got a lot of students in here. Does your attitude and the way you talk and the effort you put into your schoolwork or your extracurricular activities reflect what you say you believe? What's scary to me, church, is that what we do reflects what we believe. So what do your actions say about what you believe? You say you're a Christian, but how much thought do you give to God and his kingdom during the week? You say you're a Christian, but how often do you study the Bible or spend time seeking to know the Lord? We're three chapters into the book of Jonah. And this book is for us. And it forces those of us that are evangelically house trained, that have grown up in the church, that know God and his word and his expectations to our knees. Because have we been participating in the mission of God? 
Now, one last question on this point. Why do we not want to share the gospel? What is preventing us from participating in the mission of God? I read a quote this week in one of the commentaries that was a quote of actually Shakespeare. I wish I could tell you I was reading Shakespeare, but I'm just not that much of a Renaissance guy. So Shakespeare said in Sonnet 62, Sin of self-love possesseth all mine eye, and all my soul, and all my every part. And for this sin there is no remedy. It is so grounded inward in my heart. You see, the reason we don't participate in the mission of God is because we love ourselves more than we love others. We love our comfort. We love our perceived perception. Ultimately, we love us more than we love God. We wrapped up a Sunday school on evangelism. What was the definition of evangelism? We, We made this up. It is loving enough to engage others with the gospel. What are the three things you have to love? Loving enough, you have to love God and his word, God and his glory, and you have to love others. When you have a greater love for those three things, what drives your actions, what drives your life is to live a life of mission, of mercy and grace towards those around you. For those that aren't engaging in the mission of God, guess what? There's Jonah chapter three, verses one and two. There is a God of second chances. Every new day we get is fresh mercy for us to engage in his mission. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there is ministry to be done. So what are you waiting on? What's preventing you from engaging in the mission of God? Jonah is given a mission. He says, arise, go to Nineveh. So what what does Jonah do? He gets up, having just been vomited out onto dry land, and he heads towards Nineveh. Now, this journey from Nineveh to, from Jerusalem to Nineveh, um, we don't really know where Jonah was spit out. There's a lot of different theories on where he was spit out, uh, but we don't know where he was, where he landed. But let's just say he started from Jerusalem. That would have been a five-month journey on foot. So Jonah's got five months of hiking it all the way up to Nineveh to preach to him. And when he gets there, what's his message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Five months. In Hebrew, it's five words. He walked five months to preach five words. Now, could there have been more to this message? Possibly. Scripture doesn't indicate it, so I kind of have a tendency to think that five words was all he had to say. Now, I'm not pointing out five words as an indicator for how long sermons should be. It would be nice to have a five-word sermon, but I'm just not that good at preaching. So, no Actually, a lot of commentators think that the brevity of Jonah's message was actually Jonah withholding some things from the Ninevites. He actually didn't want them to know about, I mean, what, what was, we don't even talk about God or mercy or repentance or like, nope, that's not the message. It's just 40 days and then you're going to burn, baby. That's it. That's all Jonah has to tell him. But what does God do with five words? He saves a whole city. One of my favorite books on preaching is by John Piper, and he says something to the effect that sermons don't save lives, sentences do. And his, his point is, is I want you to think through every sentence that you ever write to put in a sermon. And I don't know about you, 
But when I think back on my life and all the sermons I've heard, it's rarely a whole sermon that I can remember. I don't really remember Jonah chapter two that I preached last week. So I don't expect you to either, right? No, what tends to stick with us is a well-put phrase or maybe a point or a paragraph uh, that God uses to impact our hearts and minds. And one of the phrases in Jonah chapter three that has stuck out to me this week is the very first two words of Jonah chapter three, verse four. Jonah began. Now we just talked about where God has called his people to be on mission. We're to be a people who pursue God's mission. But I know that there are people in this room that go, how do I do it? I mean, I've not been to seminary. I'm not trained. I'm not, I, I don't know the words to say. I can't teach. Training and education and study and practice all matter. But sometimes you just got to start. There was a guy that we had that worked for us on the farm. He was a mechanic, um, really good dude. I still consider him a friend of mine. Um, and and he, could, he could run everything on the farm. He could fix it. I mean, he was just excellent mechanic, had no know-how no, no of how to do all of it, right? Uh, and so um, he was also one of those guys that was incapable of not being covered in grease. I don't know if you, you know, farmers, if you know any of those guys, just like they're always covered in grease, that was this guy. Uh, anyways, that, not that matters. One day he's, he's off and uh, I'm pretty sure it's an irrigation motor goes down. And so it's up to me and I know enough mechanicking to get myself in trouble and make you think that I know mechanicking, but I really don't know mechanicking. Uh, so I try calling him. I'm like, hey, what do I do? But he doesn't answer and I can't get a hold of him. We're in the heat of the season. When you're a farmer, there's nothing more important than an irrigation motor running, right? So, so I just, what do I do? I, I got to start. I got to jump into it. So I start tearing into this motor, having no clue what I'm doing. Uh, and about halfway into it, I, he calls me back. Hey, what's going on? You call, Mr. Call, what do you need? And I'm like, this is what's going on. What do you think? He's like, well, you're, you're kind of on the right track. Keep going and try that and then start back up, see if it works. So uh, then he said, you just can't be afraid. Sometimes you just got to tear apart an engine so you can find the problem and build it all back together. Don't be afraid, just go. And it's kind of been something that I've had a, a mind of uh, when it comes to doing some farm things is, hey, don't be afraid. Look, we use this excuse when it comes to, to discipling, to missions, engaging in what God's doing of, I don't know what to do. I just freeze. But you know what you have? You have the word of God. And if you are saved, you have the spirit of God. And that is what you need. You just got to go. Just go home and ask your wife today, how can I pray for you? Just go home and sit down with your kids and open your Bibles and say, hey kids, let's read the story of Jonah. It's only four chapters and I can't explain all of it to you, but let's read it. And sit down and read the Bible with your kids. Just go home and say, hey, you know what? We're gonna pray today. I know it's not something we normally do. This may be weird. I'm not used to doing this, but let's sit down and pray. You don't have to unpack it. You don't have to be good at it. Your prayers may sound awful. But if God can take five words and change a whole city, what can he do with five minutes of you being intentional? Jonah was obedient in his mission to go to Nineveh. And regardless of whether Jonah withheld things to Nineveh or not, God used it. And God will use you as you step out in obedience to him. And that brings us uh, into verses five through nine. Nineveh's repentance to God is the third thing we see. God gave Jonah a mission and a message and Jonah went on and preached it. What happens next is a beautiful picture of what repentance is. Our third observation is Nineveh's repentance to God. So how do the Ninevites respond to Jonah's message? He, he preaches five words. What do they do? 
Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh repented. Now, a couple weeks ago, somebody asked me for a good book on repentance, and I realized that in my sermon prep, I never responded to that. What is a good book on repentance? What is repentance? Jonah chapter three is an excellent picture of what repentance is. And so Jonah 3 is gonna show us five different aspects of repentance. Okay, I'm gonna we'll walk through these. I hope we have these on the screen. The first part of repentance is seeing the seriousness of your sin. You see, the Ninevites heard Jonah's message and they believed that God would destroy them. They believed God. In Jonah chapter one, verse four, uh, we see, no, 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 verse, uh, verse two, we see that the evil of the Ninevites has come up before God. And in Jonah chapter three, this same wickedness becomes a point of awareness. The Ninevites saw their sin the same way God did. The king recognized it and he called for them to turn from evil in verse eight. The Ninevites saw that the seriousness of their sin deserved the full wrath of God's punishment and they believed it. So the first step in repenting is seeing the seriousness of your sin. So this causes us to stop and ask the question, how do you view your sin? Do you think even the small ways in which you re reject God deserve the wrath of God? Or have you become numb to the little things? Are you tolerant of allowing sin to persist in your heart and mind, just getting used to it? Oh, it's just a little thing. It's just the way I talk. It's, no, it's just my language I use. It's just how I think. It's no big deal. Having an awareness of the depth of our sin is the starting point on the road to repentance for we can only appreciate and receive God's mercy when we understand the weight of our sin. So the Ninevites saw the seriousness of their sin. And then the second part of repentance, and really the king in verse six gives us a really good picture of this. The king of Nineveh, when the word reaches him, what does he do? He arises and he steps off of his throne. You see this message and the ramifications of it had caused the king to realize that how he had led his kingdom was gonna result in what? Destruction. The king and the way he was ruling and leading was gonna end in the total annihilation of the city of Nineveh. The king recognizes it and he steps off of his seat. He abdicates his throne. He steps away knowing that only the true king could bring about the change that was needed. You see, repentance requires surrendering the throne of our lives. It's yielding control to God. Just as the king of Nineveh stepped off the throne of his life, of the, his kingdom, and relinquished his authority, we're called to say, God, from now on, you call the shots. True repentance is you saying, I'm no longer in control, God. I'll do what you want to do. You're calling the shots. And this isn't a one-time decision. It's a, it's a daily battle. It's a moment-by-moment -moment choice that we must make. Because what is our inclination? Our inclination is to do what we want to do. I have the personality type that if I think this is how life should go, that it's really hard for me to change the way that I think it should go. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. So I so, uh, talked about this past summer, we took the boys fishing. And I don't know if you've ever taken little kids fishing before. I have an idea of how this should go. I plan this, right? Fishing's my jam, I love to go fishing. So I've got my two boys and we're gonna go down to the stream. Now Walker's got his own fishing pole and I'm gonna get Walker set up. I'm gonna tie his fly on there and he's gonna, all right, Bubba, you're just gonna cast it up there and then I'm gonna go down the stream to Sawyer and he's gonna sit in between my legs and I'm gonna fish with Sawyer and we're just gonna catch fish left and right. We're gonna have a lot of fun. How does fishing trip go? Not like that. 
I go and I get Walker and I say, Sawyer, this is where we're going to fish. You just come with me. And so Sawyer, what does he do? He stops and he stays down the river. This is not a real story, by the way. This is an illustration. And I go to Walker and I'm tying on the fly to get him ready to go. And what's Sawyer doing downstream? He's throwing rocks into the water. So what happened to all the fish? They're gone. And what's he doing? Yelling, dad, dad, look. What's happened to all the fish where we're at? They're gone. So I'm like, Sawyer, stop, stop. Trying to help Walker. And what does Sawyer do? He slips into the water. Now he's screaming. He's crying. So now I leave Walker and I go back over here. And what does Walker do? Well, I'm trying to help Sawyer get out of the water. Well, Walker's over here fishing and he catches the tree behind him. So now I've got a wet kid and a fly up in this tree. So I run back over to the tree and I'm trying to help him. Sawyer's screaming and crying. Sawyer, just go back to your mom who's up at the cabin. You get the point. Fishing doesn't go well. As I, it doesn't go the way I planned it. Now, whose fault is it? Clearly, hey, <laughs> he said yours, Walker James. <laughs> oh, buddy. Clearly, it's their mother's fault. She's the one who had them, right? She's the one up in the cabin. Clearly, it's a four-year-old's fault for acting like a four-year-old and throwing rocks into the river. Clearly, it's an eight-year-old's fault for not waiting for just a minute so that way I can get his brother set up, right? No. Who's the problem in every moment there? It's me. I want it to go according to my way. I made a plan. I like things to be how I think they should be. But when they don't go my way, what do I do? I get angry. I get frustrated. I just wanted to catch some fish. I wanted to be the first one to catch a fish so my kids could see how good a fisherman their dad was and maybe someday they'd be like me. And we don't catch any fish, right? We ended up catching fish. Walker caught several fish for what it's worth. You guys get the point. Stepping off the throne of our heart and letting Christ rule is a moment-by-moment moment choice that we must wake, make. I, I must, in every moment, decide not what I want, but what my kids need. Not, not what I want, but how can I make, my, make sure that my kids have an experience that they remember, that we can bond together? That's, that's what stepping off the throne of your life looks like. It's not just, hey, God saved me, and that's it, I'm done. No, because what we want to do is climb right back on and say, it's all about me. My wants, my needs, my desires. The king of Nineveh arose from his throne and he stepped off. The third aspect of repentance that we see is he steps off of his throne and then what does he do? He removes his robe. Now, what's the, what does a king's robe do? It's a, it's a symbol. It says, man, the guy who's wearing that robe is somebody, right? He's the king. He's an important dude. And now all of a sudden, he's taken that off. He's set it down. He's no longer the king. He's just a commoner. He's no different from me or you. Ultimately, what the king has done is he has taken off his identity. He's no longer finding it in his position or what he does. Where does your identity lie? When others look at you, who do they perceive you to be? Who do you want others to perceive you to be? Right? I want somebody to think I'm the world's greatest watermelon farmer. So, so how do I position myself? And what do I do to, to be seen that way? I work to do that. And when I'm working to do that, you know what I've done? What am I serving? I'm serving an identity. The irony of identity is that by looking away from ourselves, we're more likely, more likely to discover our identity. So what do we do? Well, we follow Christ's call and we look away from ourselves. We look to Christ. And when we do that, we become who he created us to be. What would it look like for you? 
What would it look like if in your life, you actually, for a minute, decided to find your identity, how Christ defines you? How would it change the way you treat others if you remember the way God and his kindness treated you in Christ? How would your insecurities melt away knowing that the creator of the universe is the father that you always wanted but never had, and because of Christ, he looks at you and says, well done. He's pleased with you because of Christ. You see, the king of Nineveh took off his robe, he took off his identity, and he identified himself with the rest of the people. Where are you finding your identity? So repentance is seeing the seriousness of your sin, it's stepping off the throne of your life, it's taking off your identity, and the fourth step is you grieve over your sin. The king of Nineveh arises from his throne, removes his robe, then what does he do? He covers himself in sackcloth and he sits in ashes. What is sackcloth and ashes? Now these are some ancient forms of symbolism that were often used to show one's heart's position. Sackcloth was usually a set of clothing made of goat's hair. Now I don't know if anybody in here has ever worn goat's hair before. It's not comfortable. So I've not done that before, but I felt goat's hair. So it would show that one was sad, it would show a sign of submission. What about sitting in ashes? Sitting in ashes was what one would do to show the depths of their grieving. This is what Job does in the book of Job. Remember, his whole family is taken away from him. They're all killed. He loses everything except for his wife and three friends. And what does Job, what does Job do? Job goes and he sits in the ashes. He identifies himself with his loss, with death. That's what, that's what sitting in ashes does. Earlier, I, I asked the question, how do you see your sin? But being covered with sackcloth and ashes asks, asks us, force us to ask the question, how do you feel about your sin? Do you understand exactly what your sin cost God? Do you understand exactly what your sin costs you? When was the last time that you actually mourned for having rebelled against the holy God? Think with me to the gospels for a minute. It's this guy named Peter. Remember what Jesus tells Peter before he's crucified? In three days, or no, no, no. You're gonna ask three times, Peter, three times, and you're gonna deny me three times. What does Peter say? No way, no how, Lord. I'll die for you. I'm all in on this mission. Let's go. So Jesus is arrested, he goes to trial, and Peter's out hanging in the courtyard. This little servant girl walks up to him and says, wait a minute, aren't you with that guy in there? What does Peter say? Uh-uh. Next up, somebody from the crowd, hey, wait a minute, I know you. You're with that guy. Uh-uh, I'm not with that guy. Third person walks up, Peter, Peter don't, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Peter curses himself. I'm not with him. No way. Then what happens? The rooster crows. Peter's reminded of what Jesus had said. What has Peter just done? He has betrayed his friend. He has betrayed his Lord. He has betrayed his Savior. The things that he swore he'd never do, he just did. And how does he respond? He runs out and he weeps. Every time you sin, you betray your Lord. Does the gravity of your sin cause you to weep? When I was in college, there was a song that I liked that had a line that said, break my heart for what breaks yours, all that I am for your kingdom come. 
That's a real simple little prayer for us to pray when in all sincerity our sin doesn't break our heart. I'm like you. There's a lot of times when I would prefer my sin over what God wants for me. But Lord, may you break our hearts for what breaks yours. And here's the thing, that's a prayer that he'll answer. Because God's desire for you is Christ-likeness. Do you grieve over your sin? The Ninevites and the king of Nineveh saw the seriousness of their sin. Then the king came off his throne, vacating a seat for someone else to sit there. He removed his robe, taking away his identity. He sat in sackcloth and ashes, mourning what his sin had earned. And then what does he do? He declares a fast. And he has the whole city participate in this fast. Why? Well, fasting carries, it, carries with it the idea of seeking God's mercy. It's the fifth part of repentance, is you seek God's mercy. You see, the Ninevites had recognized that while their hearts and their subsequent actions reflected their dire situation, they were still dependent on God's mercy. Jonah 3, 9. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, suppose one evening I tell my kiddos, I say, hey kids, I'm going to give you five minutes and your job is to go into your rooms and to clean your rooms and have it all picked up. And if you don't, in five minutes, have your rooms picked up, you're gonna get a spanking. Okay, we got it, Dad. Off they go, like the obedient, perfect little angels that I have. Five minutes goes by, and I walk into the room, and lo and behold, what's happening? Those toys that they were supposed to put up, they're now playing with. And not only are they playing with them, they're throwing them at each other. And now someone's screaming and crying because someone got hit in the head. Now, this is clearly not a real situation, right? Now, what do my kids deserve in that moment? What do they deserve? For me to be true to my word and to be just, they deserve a spanking. So I say, kids, I told you five minutes. Your time's up. You didn't do it. What do they immediately do? They cover their hind ends. No, daddy, no, please, no. Just give us one more chance, right? One more chance. So I turn around and say, I'm going to get the paddle. I'm going to get the paddle. So I walk off. I go and I grab our paddle. It's got 45 seconds to get the paddle. And I walk back in and what's happened? In 45 seconds, those three have worked as a team and they've put it all up and it's immaculate. And they're, in there, they're on their knees going, Daddy, forgive us. We're sorry. We really didn't mean to do it. We really didn't mean to get carried away. Now, what do my kids deserve? What do they deserve? Have they earned mercy? Or for me to be true to my word, do they really deserve punishment? Because they disobeyed God's command. They disobeyed my command. I'm not God. They disobeyed my command. As hard as it is to say what my kids really deserve because they didn't meet what I, the expectation I gave them is they deserve punishment. But what are they dependent on? Mercy. They're dependent on my mercy. You see, that's what the Ninevites get. They get that even though they've repented, does their repentance guarantee their mercy? No. What they're depending on is God's mercy. This brings us to our fourth and most difficult point. God's mercy towards Nineveh. Look back with me to verse 10 for a second. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. 
Now, God sees the Ninevites' repentance, how they turn from their ways, and God turns his wrath away from them. Now, we've covered that God didn't have to relent because they repented, right? He, he didn't have to show them mercy because they did what they were supposed to do. But there's a more difficult question that comes from Jonah 3.10. Did God change his ways because they repented? Now, we're going to wade into some deeper points of theology that are actually really important for us to stand, understand. Because when we read verse 10, it absolutely appears that God did respond to their repentance with mercy. It was because of what they did, he changed his mind, right? If you have the King James Version, that word relent is translated, I think, the word repent. Or if you have, I think, the New Living Translation, uh, it actually says God changed his mind of the disaster he said he would do to them. Does God change his mind? There's a lot of problems with that. What do we know to be true of God? We know that God is the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be forever. The fancy theology word is, is called God is immutable. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's always the same. And that brings us a lot of comfort because when our circumstances change, we can know God doesn't. We can know he's consistent. He is always faithful. He is always good. He is always merciful. He is always kind. God is the same. He is immutable. So then, how do we reconcile God's immutability with Jonah 3.10 where he does seem to change his mind? The best explanation that I can give is that our language is limited. When we talk about God, God is limitless, right? No matter what words we can come up with, we can never describe God to his fullness. He is beyond our understanding. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we'll say things like God sees and God feels and God hears. Like, uh, like think of Exodus chapter 2. Think back in Exodus, what, is, what happens? The people of Israel, they cry out to God because they're enslaved. And what does it say in Exodus 2, 24 and 25? It says that God saw the Israelites, God heard their cries, and it just says he knew, period. When it says God saw, what does it mean that God saw? Does it mean he just sees them struggling? Or does it mean that he actually sees what's going on in their hearts? And he sees the motives behind all of this. It says God here, what does it mean that he actually heard? Or what, do you, what does it mean when it says God knew? Is it like he didn't know something before? Here's the thing. When it comes to describing God, our language is limited. We describe it the best way that our finite minds can understand an infinite God. Okay? So when we come to passages like Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, because there's actually quite a few of them in, in the Old Testament, and we see that God apparently changed his mind based off the actions of others, we can know that from our perspective, while it looks like God may have changed his mind, our language is limited. It's limited in being able to describe and understand exactly what God is doing in that moment. So if God doesn't change his mind in chapter, verse 10 of chapter three, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? It means that God's mercy and his grace towards you has absolutely nothing to do with you. You're not going to do enough good deeds to make your way into heaven. You're not going to do enough good deeds to keep your way into heaven. God relents because of who he is, not because of what the Ninevites did. Jonah chapter four, verse two. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's who God is. Your salvation and acceptance before a holy God isn't dependent upon a prayer you pray. It's not dependent upon you getting baptized or being good enough. No matter how much you go to church, no matter how much you keep his word, no matter how much you tithe, no matter how good of a person you are, God doesn't stamp his seal of approval on you because of you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So if that's true, if our salvation and keeping by God is entirely dependent on him, then what's the point of repenting? Why not just carry on with life, right? God's gonna do what God's gonna do. Again, another good question. Here's why repentance is necessary and why you can know that God will turn his wrath away from you when you do repent. You see, on this side of the cross, we know that when we do repent, God will relent from his disaster towards you because he didn't relent towards his son. You see, all of the wrath of God that was due your sin, when you place your faith in Jesus, he turns towards his son. And now it's not turned at you, it's turned at him. See, Jesus lived the perfect life. He obeyed the call of God and participated in the mission of God when you and I didn't. But God in his mercy towards us sent that perfect son to the cross to pay the price for our sin. And now, instead of being like the king of Nineveh, asking with uncertainty whether God will exact his punishment based off of what we do, we can have confidence that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question for you is this, are you trying to earn God's approval? Hoping that someday you'll get to heaven based off your merit, or are you trusting in the mercy of God because of the cross of Christ to relent. You see, Jonah, Jonah got a second chance. Jonah got a second chance to participate in the mission of God. Every breath that you breathe is a second chance for you to participate in the mission of God. Jonah preached the message God gave him. It wasn't much, but God used a simple message to save a city. He just had to start. What are you gonna start this week Dads, moms, students, grandparents, what are you gonna start this week to participate in the mission of God towards others? Nineveh heard the message Jonah preached and they repented. They saw the seriousness of their sin. They stepped off the throne of their lives. They removed their old identities. They grieved over their sin and they sought God's mercy. And then God, being true to his character, he showed them that mercy. He relented of his disaster. Our God truly is a merciful God of second chances. So the question for you is, will you repent and will you participate? What are you waiting on? Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you humbling ourselves, recognizing that our sin has been costly. Father, your son was crushed for it. Please help me Please help us to feel the gravity of our sin. Lord, help us to see our sin the same way you see it. God, help us to hate our sin like you hate it. Forgive us, God, for when we love it. Spirit of God, grant us courage. 
Grant those in the room that don't know you the ability to acknowledge their sin and separation from a holy God. And may today, Lord, may they cry out to you to be saved. And Lord, as you lead us, your people in repentance, give us the ability to step forward in obedience to the call of the mission that you've given us. Thank you for being a merciful God. Thank you for new mercies with every breath. Thank you for being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we desperately need you. Work in us today, Lord, for your glory and our good. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing. Thank you.